1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 is the one on which we'll end today. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 11 because it's the foundation upon which the chapter is built and arguably uh, the book as well. Just a word of warning, this morning's sermon is kind of like a water slide. It's going to go this way and that way and this way and that and finally splash into the text, go down deep and then boom, pop back up. So uh, if you're wondering where it's all going in the midst, just know that's, that's how it's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And then verse 58. Therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Thus far God's word. In 1915, roughly three years before the United States entered World War I, the Allied powers attempted to seize control of the sea route from Europe into Russia. And in doing so, knocked the nation of Turkey out of the war. In fact, they wanted to go all the way in and take over Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul. Well, the plan was filled with great promise, but it was also accompanied with serious risk. In fact, the risk was so great that the plan was strongly opposed by John Fisher, who was the professional head of the British Navy. But it was more strongly supported by Winston Churchill, who was the civilian head of the British Navy and who was going to spearhead the whole operation. So here is a month-by-month account of what happened. The campaign began in February 1915 with the bombing of Turkish forts along the edge of the Gallipoli Peninsula. The resistance of the Ottoman Turks was so fierce that the Allied advance was stopped and the British naval commander, British naval commander Sackville Carden had a nervous breakdown. In March, undeterred, the Allied Navy sailed toward the Dardanelles the name of the sea route that they hoped to control, where again they encountered heavy fire from land, undetected mines at sea, 
the loss of three ships and severe damage to three more. So having failed at sea in April, the Allies mounted a land attack, invading the Gallipoli Peninsula and establishing two beachheads, one way down in the south and one up in the northwest. Uh, This one was secured by the British, this one by the Australians and the New Zealanders. Now the invasion of Gallipoli came at the high cost of human life and especially for those from Australia and New Zealand who were supposed to land on this broad stretch of coastline but instead landed two kilometers uh, away from their target in, in this little cove that was bordered by steep hills and flat ridges, not the place where you want to invade. And here the combined Anzac forces, as they would become known, endured massive resistance. And as a result, uh, subsequent heat, uh, flies, disease, thirst, and the stench of unburied bodies. In May, a brigade of New Zealanders was sent south to the, uh, the southern beachhead where they were going to try to move inland and, and take out the village of Krithia. But the attempt was a massive failure. It accomplished absolutely nothing and resulted in over 800 casualties among the New Zealand forces alone. In August, after a summer-long stalemate, the Allied forces attempted to break the gridlock by establishing a third beachhead. And they were successful at that. But their subsequent indecision about how to move forward led to another standstill, the opportunity for the Turks to uh, refresh and replenish their forces, and things went nowhere. So by October, the Allied forces were forced to reckon with two things. First, the problem of mounting casualties as well as insufficient reinforcements. And then second, the growing possibility of having to abandon the entire effort. Well, in November, uh, British War Secretary Lord Kitchener visited the region and he agreed that the more than 100,000 troops needed to be uh, withdrawn. And so in early December, the evacuation began. And on January 9th, 1916, the last of the Allied troops departed the peninsula. Of all the Allied efforts on Gallipoli over the course of the previous year, their retreat was considered to be the most successful. When it was finally said and done, what did the Allied forces have to show for the Gallipoli campaign? In a single word, absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. It was a campaign that was abundant with disaster and absence of any influence. Almost 50,000 Allied soldiers died in vain. And almost a quarter million more soldiers suffered casualties in vain. What a waste. What a waste. It's no wonder that following the failed campaign, Winston Churchill resigned his post as civilian commander of the Navy and was haunted by Gallipoli for decades to come. 
Life in Christ sometimes feels like the allied invasion of Gallipoli. Something filled with great promise at the beginning when we were given a new identity, we were born again, a new status as ones who were justified before God, a new destiny as ones who upon death will rise again, all of these things at which we've looked over the past month. But there are times along the way when all that comes under attack, so much so that we feel as if our life in Christ is going nowhere. It's all in vain. Of course, the kind of opposition that generates those feelings was clearly foretold all the way back at the beginning of church history. Consider Jesus who said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. And then in Mark 8, 35, he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, that is, undergoes death for my sake and that of the gospel, will save it. This is why Paul described the gospel as a stumbling block to the world. In fact, that term stumbling block comes from the Greek word from which we get the English term scandal. And it's why why Paul was scandalously treated for proclaiming it, suffering great labors and multiple imprisonments and countless beatings, a detailed list of which and their effects can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Not only was life in Christ launched against great opposition, but it continued in that way. Throughout church history, those in Christ have been regularly opposed and violently and mortally attacked for the gospel. A couple of years ago, I downloaded the 16th century classic, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Maybe some of you have have picked that up. It's a detailed record of gospel opposition, yea, even death for Christ, beginning in the first century AD, going up to about the time of the Reformation, uh, the 1500s. Each night, I would uh, read an account or two of a woman or a man who stood for the gospel against the world and were rewarded for their devotion by being delivered to all manner of beasts and flames and sword and some other manner of cruel and unusual death. So for those in Christ, our history began under opposition. It continued under opposition and even today remains under opposition. On the big scale, we're reminded of this when we hear of things like a joint study that was released just this past year by two major universities that reports that Christians, and I quote, are the most widely targeted religious community suffering terrible persecution globally. This comes as no surprise when compared to the well-traveled data revealing that More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all 19 previous centuries combined. Gratefully, we here in the United States don't face that kind of hostility. But Google's refusal last week to do business with an evangelical publisher because of Bible verses in its summer club 
curriculum, and the New, Yorker's ma- the New Yorker magazine's opposition to Chick-fil-A's arrival in New York City, referring to it last week as an infiltration, and I quote, in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism, and the California Assembly's two draconian bills in process that if passed may in one case prevent the legal practice of a certain Christian belief and in another case put the press on certain Christian families reminds us that even in the United States the the church is under increasing opposition. Now, we are no doubt aware of this opposition on the big scale. We're aware of it but we especially feel it on the small scale, don't we? On the personal scale. We feel it when someone who has professed Christ, maybe a a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, maybe somebody in your grace group, maybe someone in your core group, maybe a neighbor or a colleague, now wants nothing to do with Jesus making you wonder if, she, if he or she ever knew Christ to begin with, what it was you thought you were sharing in Christ, if the investment you made in the person over all those years was for anything, was in vain. I can feel that way. I can feel that way when I look back over 30 years of ministry. And there are those for whom, no doubt, I am happy, I'm overjoyed, Uh, some of whom I prayed for this morning, men across the United States that are filling pulpits with whom I used to work, into whom I poured, they bring me great joy, but there are others who bring me great sadness. Those who have broken my heart, compromising a Christian marriage to get out of marriage altogether or enter into some aberrant wandering from the gospel to achieve academic accolades in the secular academy. We're attacking the gospel by flaunting a profligate lifestyle on Instagram or Facebook. These reminders of persons can at times make me feel like it's all for nothing. What what was it for? It was all in vain. No one knows that better than my wife who hears, hears my sorrow come bleeding out. Sometimes makes me wonder if I should have taken the job that was offered to me back in 1986 as a drive-time disc jockey in Denver. <laughs> KQXI, 1550. So while life in Christ is certainly one of great promise especially given our new identity as explained to us by Eric, our status as explained to us by Kenny, our destiny as preached by Jackson last week. It's also one of great pressure, opposition, attack that leaves us feeling sometimes like it's going nowhere. It's all in vain. And like our certainty in the gospel is being replaced by uncertainty. And it's at that point that we need to be refreshed in the gospel, or as Paul puts it, we need to be reminded of the gospel, this thing to which he refers as of first importance 
in 15 verse 1. Because as we're reminded of the gospel, we're strengthened in our certainty of it. And as a result, encouraged by our certainty in it. Assuring us that even the most difficult labor on behalf of Christ is not in vain. So that's the way we're going to move ahead this morning. Just two points. Strengthened in our certainty of the gospel. That's point number one. And then encouraged by our certainty in the gospel. That's point number two. But before we go there, I think it would be helpful to get a sense for what was going on in ancient Corinth because in many ways it was then like we are now. So much so that the late Ray Stedman up at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto used to refer to 1st and 2nd Corinthians as 1st and 2nd Californians. So, as for culture, here's ancient Corinth, and uh, this is how one scholar describes it. I think you'll find it interesting. Corinth was was a sport and entertainment culture. Caesar had reinstituted the Isthmian Games in Corinth, which were second only to the Olympics. The city's theater held up to 18,000, and the concert hall some 3,000. Travel, tourism, sex, and religious pluralism were woven together in Corinth's culture. Significantly, Nero never visited Athens, never visited Sparta, but he spent considerable time in Corinth, enjoying the adulation of its voluptuous populace. So first century Corinth was a lot like 21st century Southern California, a destination location for championship competition, first-run performances, sensual indulgence, and spiritual inquiry. And nestled in the midst of all that, was the church, whose own culture was mixed at best. On the one hand, Paul described the Christians at Corinth in terms with which we would identify. In fact, there's three in particular in chapter 6, verse 11. He commended them for treating him well and for maintaining the traditions that he had passed on to them. But on the other hand, Paul was worried. Was he ever worried? Because the onslaught of Corinthian culture had made the church less certain about Christ, but more certain about itself. And replaced their gospel sensibilities with these self-focused patterns of abuse. Abuse of power, chapter 4. Sex, chapters 5 and 10. The legal system, chapter 6, and then uh, areas of struggle, singleness and marriage in chapter 7, idolatry and dysfunction in chapter 8. Now, these patterns didn't develop overnight. Now, the the Corinthian culture didn't consume the church like a whale in one big bite, but rather like a school of minnows that just slowly ate it up one little bite after another, making their spiritual decline almost imperceptible to themselves, but very apparent to Paul. So much so that he wrote, I I couldn't address you as spiritual people. 
but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, chapter 3, verse 1. So after 14 chapters filled with very few commendations and a lot of concern, uh, Paul sets out, here's point number one, ready? Paul sets out to strengthen the church in the certainty of the gospel because this is the thing on which they stand. It's the thing on which everything rises and falls. And so we have that in verses one through 11. And as he does, there are six things that I want to point out that are, are very apparent in these verses. Number one, the gospel was not invented by Paul. The gospel was not invented by Paul. That is to say, what the Corinthians received from Paul, there in verse one, Paul himself had received himself. He mentions that in verse three. Number two, this is really 1A, but I'm calling it two. The gospel was received by Paul from Christ himself. And so Paul says to the Galatians, the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel, for I didn't receive it from any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. Number three, the gospel was not something new. It, it, it wasn't the latest uh, good idea to have come along. No, rather it was something old. Really, the consummation of something old, as old as the scriptures, and more important, in accordance with the scripture, in keeping with the scripture, in line with the scripture, flowing out of the scripture. Number four, the gospel was all about Christ. His death for our sins, there in verse three. His burial and resurrection, there in verse four. Jesus is the one for whom, beginning with Moses, all the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. First Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Number five, you've heard me say this before. The gospel took place in human history. Human history didn't take place in Middle Earth, didn't take place in Narnia. The gospel occurred in time and space so that, number six, the gospel, Christ dead, buried, and risen again, was authenticated by real people. People just like you and me. So in verse five, Peter, who profanely denied Christ, saw him raised from the dead. The 12 who deserted Jesus at his greatest hour of need saw him raised from the dead. Verse number six, over 500 at one time, saw Jesus raised from the dead, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. Verse seven, James, Jesus' brother, who thought he was nuts, if you're taking notes, jot down Mark chapter three, verse 21. James, who thought his brother was nuts, saw him raised from the dead. Everything changed. Verse eight, Paul, who once 
persecuted followers of the risen Christ, became a follower once he saw Jesus risen from the dead. Acts 22, 15. Now back in verse number seven, Paul tells us that the apostles saw Jesus raised from the dead. So the question I wanna ask is who were the apostles? What really was an apostle? Well, an apostle was one who not only saw the resurrection of Jesus, but had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. That is to say the apostles had witnessed the totality of Jesus' ministry and were commissioned by Jesus to then go and bear witness to it. And they did that. That's what the book of Acts in large part is all about. You see them uh, bearing witness to the gospel. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 39 of Acts. Acts 13, verses 30 and 31. Even appealing uh, among those to whom they preached who had also seen Jesus crucified and raised again. Let me just go back to Acts for a second and point to a couple of passages. Here's one in Acts chapter two, verse 32. This is Peter, he's preaching and he says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Chapter three, verse 15. You killed the author of life. You'd have to be uh, pretty bold to speak that to a group that, in, that had in fact done that, but he did. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we're all witnesses. Chapter five uh, of Acts, beginning in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Then verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. So the apostles were certain of the gospel. That is clear. But our certainty of their testimony is only as reliable as the vehicle by which it comes to us. And so I just want to do a a, a quick sidebar here on the reliability of the scripture. Okay? Three quick things. The first one is a statement by an eminently qualified archaeologist by the name of Howard Voss who said, From the standpoint of literary evidence, the only logical conclusion is that the case for the reliability of the New Testament is infinitely stronger than that for any other record of antiquity. That's a pretty bold statement. So, number two, let's take a look at some great works of antiquity. And for years, there's been a popular and periodically updated list Uh, of about 10 classical writers that includes these things. First of all, the title of one of their well-known works, the total manuscripts in existence for that work, and then the number of years between the time of its writing and the earliest known manuscript. So for instance, Herodotus, he was an historian, he wrote a history. There are 109 known manuscripts of his history. And there are 1,300 years between the time of its writing and the earliest known manuscript. So that's as much time uh, uh, as there is between today and the year 668. It's a long time ago. I was going to try to 
just liven that up, color it up a little bit, I looked up 668 uh, on Google, and I'm a, I was a history major. I didn't recognize a thing or a name that happened in the year 668 of Plato's tetralogies. There are 210 known manuscripts, 1,300 years between the time of its writing and the earliest known copy. The Annals of Tacitus, there are 20 known manuscripts and almost 1,000 years between the time of its writing and the earliest known manuscript. That the existence of these men and the reliability of their work is never doubted should heighten our confidence in the reliability of the Scripture and especially the New Testament for which there are not just 20 or 100 or 200 but over 66,000 extant manuscripts. And not a millennium between the time of its writing and the earliest known manuscript, but only about 100 years. In fact, there's a fragment of John that is dated to within roughly 30 to 40 years of the apostle's death. Number three. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote a friend of mine uh, who is a, a professor at Cambridge University. He's an expert in ancient manuscripts. In fact, he's the lead editor of a new edition of the Greek New Testament. And I asked him about the historical reliability of the Bible, to which he responded in part. So this, this is a quote here. He writes, is the apostles' teaching reliable? Yes. See the tiny details throughout. The names. The names of hamlets and people and their responses and weather. Also, consider the personal cost of saying, like James did, that your brother is the son of God. Who would do that? <laughs> so, is the Bible reliable? Yes. So by virtue of its internal coherence and external support, we have every reason to be strengthened in our certainty of the gospel. And therefore, and here comes point number two, encouraged by our certainty in the gospel. So notice Paul's incredulity in verse number 12. We're back now in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 12, where he writes, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, fact, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? You see, uncertainty in Christ's resurrection leads to the uncertainty of one's own future resurrection, which according to verse 19, leads to hope in this life only. What Peter Greer and Chris Horst referred to among Christians as functional atheism. In their book, Mission Drift, Greer and Horst illustrate the effects of this functional atheism in Christian organizations where where certainty in the gospel has waned or, or even vanished altogether. And according to their research, what happens is the Christians running the organization can ironically become, and I quote, the biggest critics of bold Christian distinctives, <laughs> which robs the organization of its gospel influence so that it blends into the larger 
pool of groups like it that are now only offering finite help for a world that is in infinite need. And so this is why I imagine that there was great passion coursing through Paul's pen as he writes here in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied because it's for nothing. It's in vain. And then even greater passion in verse 20 where he begins, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And even greater passion still, as he remembers Isaiah 25. He has to be thinking of Isaiah 25 in verse 54, when he writes of the day when death is swallowed up in victory. And then as we sang earlier, he writes, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And then down in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death. How? By the one through whom it was conquered our Lord Jesus Christ. So for those of you who are doubting today, for those of you who are suffering profound disappointment, for those of you who are even standing against death, and some of you are, this is for you. This is for you. I was thinking about the end of Pilgrim's Progress If you've never read that, you've got to read Pilgrim's Progress. But you recall, they can see the city there at the end of the book, and Pilgrim and Hopeful are trotting along, and they have to step down into the water. There's a moat that surrounds the city, and uh, Pilgrim's going under. He's just about there. He's taking on water. But Hopeful says, uh, Hopeful encourages him. And Hopeful says, I can feel the ground beneath my feet. You can do it. And they make it up to the other side. And that's what we need to do. Every week we need to encourage one another in the gospel, the certainty of the gospel. You know, at the outset of the sermon, I said that for the Allied forces, the Gallipoli campaign was in vain. And it was. But for one thing. Australia and New Zealand formed a bond that's marked every April 25th. So they observed it this past Wednesday. It's called Anzac Day. Anzac Day was forged on the anvil of their shared misery and death there at Gallipoli. And it's commemorated by solemn memorial services and it will be forever marked by the over 25 cemeteries along the Gallipoli Peninsula that hold their dead. Those in Christ those of us here have also formed a bond that's marked every year. We did it 29 days ago. We call it Easter. And like Anzac Day, Easter was forged on the shared anvil of misery and death, but is commemorated not with sadness, but with joy. Since Easter is forever marked, not by an empty, not by an occupied tomb, but an empty one a fact of which we can be certain, in which we can be strengthened, by which we can be encouraged, so that like Paul, we can say a resounding amen to the words with which he ends chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. So be it. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and that we have sat under today. We also know that the word is the sword of the spirit and so we pray that he would hack and whack his way into the inner recesses of our soul and strengthen our faith. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness to us. We're especially grateful that that the gospel is true even down to the last moment for those who are struggling with their own mortality today, for those who are undergoing great disappointment and doubt and wondering if, if it was all for naught. Encourage them. May we encourage one another in these things. We pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.